But we're doing a series currently through the book of Esther. And today's portion falls to chapter 2. Here's a quick summary of the book. Esther is about God. That's the summary of the book. It's really about God and His sovereignty. That means His unlimited, absolute, intricate control in human history. And He's wielding His influence in every moment of every day in every life without exception. He's wielding His influence to do two main things. Underneath the big umbrella of glorifying Himself, the two ways He's doing that, and Esther shows us, is He's keeping His promises. And He's preserving His people. Well, as we keep reading the Bible, Esther's not the only book in the Bible, as we keep reading the Bible, we find out that all of the promises that God has ever made are made to His Son, the Lord Jesus. And anybody who is in Christ has all the promises. And so we could say Esther's about God, and it's about God keeping His promises to His Son and to all those whose hope is in Christ. Well, I did say the book is about God, but God, some of you may know, is never explicitly mentioned in the book. So Esther was one of the last books to be accepted into the canon, the the Bible, because it never names God. God's nowhere to be named. And although He's not explicitly found anywhere in the book, it is very abundantly obvious to any honest reader that God's fingerprints are on every syllable, every sentence, every moment, every life, every episode is saturated with the presence and the power of God. God is, in the book of Esther, orchestrating the events of human history like an orchestra conductor is leading the instruments God is orchestrating human history and every event in it to providentially keep His promises and preserve His people. In order to understand the force and impact of chapter 8, which we're about to read, I want to let you know that we're coming to a turning point in the book. And so for the next maybe three or four minutes, I want to connect a bunch of dots in the book of Esther for us all, and especially those of us who've not been part of this series, or like me, you can't remember what you had for breakfast today, let alone what we preached over the last few weeks. So let's just connect some dots in the book of Esther. Chapter 8, as I said, is a turning point. That's really a soft way to say it because it's a Copernican shift. Ah! We're not the center of the universe. The sun is in the middle. We're spinning around that big ball of fire. It's like that kind of shift in, verse, uh, in chapter 8. And really, between chapters 3 and 8, you start to see the clarity that the author obviously intended to accentuate the shift. He uses the same words. Almost the exact same verses. Chapter 3, chapter 8. Chapter 3, chapter 8. Chapter 4, chapter 8. Chapter 7, chapter 8. It's, it's almost identical. For example, this is just a summary list. Chapter 3, verse 10. The king, Ahasuerus, Xerxes, takes the ring from his finger, the signet ring, and he gives it to wicked Haman. Chapter 8, verse 2, which we're about to read. The king reclaimed his ring from wicked Haman before his demise and gave it to Mordecai, the Jew. 
Chapter 3, verse 12, the orders of Haman went out to annihilate the Jews. They were written, they were sealed with the king's ring, and they were distributed through all the provinces. That's 3.12.8.9. The orders of Mordecai that led to the preservation of the Jews were written, sealed with the king's rings, distributed through 127 provinces. That's from modern day Pakistan all the way over to Ethiopia. Chapter 3, verse 13, the decree said, and I quote from Haman, destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, and plunder their goods. Chapter 8, verse 10, Mordecai's edict gave Jews permission to quote, destroy, kill, or annihilate any armed force or any nationality or province that may attack you, including women and children, and plunder their property. Do you see the symmetry? Let me just give you a few more. This is not an exhaustive list. 3.14, a copy of the text of Haman's edict was to be issued as law. 8.13, a copy of the text of Mordecai's edict was to be issued as law. 3.15, when Haman's edict was issued, the king and Haman sat down to drink. And now we start to see a shift. But the city of Susa, the NASB says, was bewildered. 8.14, when the edict of Mordecai was distributed in the citadel, the city of Susa had a joyous celebration. 4.1, when Mordecai heard of Haman's edict, Mordecai tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and ashes. He went out of the city into the square and wept and wailed bitterly. But in chapter 8, when Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing not sackcloth and ashes, not torn clothes, but he was wearing a royal garment of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. Will you see the point? Haman's edict goes out in chapter 4. When it does, there is, quote, mourning and wailing and weeping and fasting among all the Jews who are in sackcloth and ashes. When Mordecai's edict goes out in chapter 8, there's joy and gladness and feasting and celebration. You can see the shift. Esther chapter 8, verse 1, reading from the New American Standard translation, hear the word of the living God. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, wept, and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman the Agagite and his plot which he had devised against the Jews. The king extended the golden scepter to Esther, so Esther arose and stood before the king. Then she said, if it pleases the king, and if I have found favor before him, and the matter seems proper to the king, and I am pleasing in his sight. Let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. Verse 6, For how can I endure to see the calamity which will befall my people? And how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? So King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther. 
And him they have hanged on the gallows because he had stretched out his hand against the Jews. Now you write to the Jews as you see fit, in the king's name, and seal it with the signet ring. For a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. Verse 9. So the king's scribes were called at that time. In the third month, that is the month Sivan, on the 23rd day. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews. The satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces which extended from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to every province according to its script and to every people according to their language as well as to the Jews according to their script and their language. He wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring and sent letters by couriers on horses riding on steeds sired by the royal stud. In them, the king granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and to defend their lives. To destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them, including children and women. And to plunder their spoil. On one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, that's the month Adar, a copy of the edict to be issued as law in each and every province was published to all the peoples so that the Jews would be ready for this day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers, hastened and impelled by the king's command, went out riding on the royal steeds. And the decree was given out at the citadel in Susa. 15. Then Mordecai, went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced for the Jews there was light and gladness and joy and honor in each and every province and in each and every city wherever the king's commandment had and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews. A feast and a holiday And many among the peoples of the land became Jews, for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. The Word of the Lord. Join me again at the throne of grace as we ask for God's help as we consider this passage. Oh, Father, we ask that You would do Psalm 119, verse 133, right now. That You would establish our footsteps in Your Word, and not let any iniquity have dominion over us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In chapter 8, we see how God intended from the beginning, though it was veiled at first, we see how God intended to work His providential plan in the days of the Persian Empire to preserve His people, destroy His enemies, and keep His good promises. Preserve His people. Destroy His enemies. And keep His good promises. Guess what God's doing today? (laughs) He's working precisely the same way. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. We have to remember as we come into Esther in chapter 8 that years go by between many of the events contained in this little book. Young Queen Esther had been in office for no less than four years, probably seven at the time of chapter 8. Prior to making her faithful and faith-filled approach to the king, if I perish, I perish. The end of chapter 4, she had probably been 
queen for four years at that time. Haman had been in rule as vice regent of Persia, the king's right-hand man, wearing the signet ring for probably seven years by the time we make it to chapter 8. I just point out that timeline so I can say this to you precious people. Some of you today very much feel like you're living somewhere between chapter 3 and chapter 8. The tension, meaning many of you understand intuitively because whatever it is you're walking through, stuff some of you have been walking through for a very, very long time, you understand because you know verses that say so that God is faithful. You can preach that sermon. But you're living in a situation that severely tests your faith. You're not shifting on God's faithfulness. It, it's your faith that feels so weak. Like Esther and Mordecai and the Jews of Persia who received an official edict all the way back in chapter 3, that they would be annihilated. Eleven months later, the month Adar, on the thirteenth day, and all those people scattered through all those 127 provinces saw absolutely no way around it. They're between chapter 3 and chapter 8. Some of you are seeking today like those Jews of days gone by to hope against hope. You know that God is out there. You know that God is faithful. you got a verse or two that you can support your promises with. But in your own life, you're hoping against hope that God will come through for you. Oh, may God use Esther chapter 8 to inject your faith with His Gospel promises in these next few moments. All Christians are called to walk by faith. Nobody's exempted from that. We all have to learn to cling to God when what Peter in the New Testament described happening to us. When Peter said, even though now, now for a little while you are distressed by various trials. I love when the Bible just like lumps it all in there. <laughs> Whatever you're going through, various trials, you're distressed by them. Why, Peter? Why, Peter? Under inspiration, he finished the sentence, so that the testing of your faith may be proved to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, let's step into the narrative of chapter 8. And through that window, we have a goal. Not to know the words, but to know the author. Let's look together as deeply as we can by faith into the heart of the God who wrote these words. There are three things I want to lay before you. Number one is verses 1 and 2. Number two is verses 4 to 14. Number three is from verse 15 to 17. First, verses 1 and 2, a new leader. A new leader. Beginning in chapter 8, Esther is referred to from this moment on only as Queen Esther. That's significant because prior in the book, she's primarily, not exclusively, but mainly referred to just as Esther. The author's given us a hint. Something is shifting. She was already the queen. But now she's exercising her queenly privileges and responsibility. Now that Haman has been executed at the end of chapter 7, the king is looking for somebody to take his place. First, the crown has inherited the estate of the traitor, Haman. He's been impaled on a 75-foot-tall pole. His body is suspended for everybody in Susa to see. This is what happens to the man who defies the king. 
And now what's he to do with Haman's estate? Well, if you look at verses 1 and 2, he hands it over to the queen. He gives Haman's estate to her. The man who had sought to murder Esther, to exterminate her people, we see had become a pawn in the hand of Almighty God to be her benefactor in his death. He didn't write out his will. God did. And Esther got the document. But notice, not only is Queen Esther given charge over the house of Haman, but when I say a new leader, I mean Mordecai. There's another leader installed in the text. Verse 1 at the end of the verse says, And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. The king took off a signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, verse 2, and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now you see the Copernican shift that we were talking about earlier. This text is meant to cause the reader to be filled with wonder and rejoice. And we all want Mordecai to win. Finally, it's happening. We're supposed to be filled with wonder that God has so obviously been working out the details of every difficult situation. When Mordecai was out there years ago, weeping and wailing in sackcloth, sitting in the city square, refusing the wardrobe that Esther sent to him, when he's praying his heart out that God would show up, that God would show up, that God would hear his cry, we see now that God was hearing his cry. God was working the whole while, but finally we get to see it. God's sovereign purposes, even in the midst of a very difficult situation. It's why the ancients and people in church history would lean into God's promises during times of great and terrible suffering. In tremendous difficulty, we get some of the greatest expressions coming out of the saints in church history. I'm mindful now of William Cooper's famous hymn, God moves in a mysterious way. When Cooper wrote in one of those almost inspired stanzas, <laughs> Fear not, ye saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessing on your head. God's using the hard stuff to do the good stuff. And it's always true. So the man who should have been honored in the first place, is finally in power. We have a new leader, Mordecai. Following Haman's humiliating execution, the very man who had been the bane of Haman's existence. Do you remember what happened at Haman's little party when he invited all his friends and his wife just a few chapters earlier? And he had a brag session. Look at all the stuff I've done. Look at all the honor I've received. Oh, by the way, I'm second in command in Persia. Oh, and if you didn't know, I went to a banquet last night. Just me, the king, and the queen. And uh, yeah, you guys aren't invited, but I'm going to another one tomorrow. That was just a few chapters ago. But in that brag session, do you remember what Haman said? I'm talking about to his best friends and his wife, not his enemies. Yet all this does not satisfy me because... Mordecai. The man who had become the bane of Haman's existence had now become his royal replacement. 
wearing the very same signet ring that used to be on Haman's finger, and now Mordecai, not Haman, is given charge over the entire house, indeed the kingdom. Well, beneath this first point, before we move on, as we consider this new leader, Mordecai, there are a few details I just want to draw out of these first two verses to meditate with you on. Verse 1 says, And Mordecai came before the king. Well, if you read that sentence in the book of Esther especially, your ears are supposed to perk up because prior to this point in the narrative, nobody comes in front of the king uninvited. Not even his royal dignitaries march themselves into his presence. His own wife can't come in uninvited. But here we're told that little Mordecai came before the king. The author tells us the reason that he was granted such free access. Do you see it in verse 1? For Esther had disclosed what he was to her. It was her position that gave him such unfettered access. Instead of concealing her identity any long, longer as she had done all the way up until the end of chapter 7, she never told the man she married what stock she came from. Until chapter 7, that's a long time and a lot of years, a lot of water under that bridge before she revealed from whence she came. Now Esther's found not only revealing her identity, but her people. Her family tree. What He was to her. I love the way the NAS translates that very difficult Hebrew phrase at the end of verse 1. Esther disclosed... He was hers. Esther disclosed she was His. The language is so intricately woven together in the original Hebrew that you can't tell where one starts and the other stops or where one stops and the other starts. Deeper than Mordecai's nurturing and counseling influence, chapter 2, verse 7, as he raised this little girl after her parents died, Deeper than his counsel to her for practical wisdom and how to navigate life in the castle, in Susa, in a pagan land, under a pagan empire. Deeper than his godly prophetic voice to her at the end of chapter 4. Esther, whether relief or deliverance is going to come for the Jews is not the question. God will do it. The question is, will you live to see it? If you don't go to the king, Mordecai said to Esther in chapter 4, verse 13, God will just raise up somebody else who will, but you and your father's house will perish. He was a godly prophetic voice in the time of intense anxiety and worry. But we're talking about something deeper now when we say what he was to her. Deeper than his nurturing and counseling influence in Esther's life, the author begins to bring to the fore in chapter 8 something that's been in the background up until now. That's the unity of their God-appointed ministry for the Jewish people. Deborah Reed in her commentary on Esther said, it seems as if Esther and Mordecai are now being perceived as a single entity consisting of complementary qualities in sum, Reed concludes, when Esther discloses to Xerxes what Mordecai was to her, she is saying to the king, take 
us together. It's a beautiful portrait of unity in purpose. It's what it's supposed to look like in the church for the saints to serve the King together and His grand purposes in the world. It's like the partnership that's supposed to exist in human marriage between husband and wife. Husbands and wives standing shoulder to shoulder, eye to eye, kneecap to kneecap, arm in arm as one. Unified as one in their purpose to serve the Lord and to serve His purposes in the world. But there's a deeper, deeper meditation I want to draw your heart to. Esther's solidarity with Mordecai this new leader. Their joint service to the Lord's people. Who, by the way, are under threat of perishing. I'm not saying it's in the text. I'm telling you what it reminds me of. It it reminds me of an ultimate unity where there are people serving the purposes of God. Namely, God Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can't quite tell where one ends and the other begins, though they are distinct persons, they are without division, each conspiring together to accomplish and apply our our eternal redemption. The main point of the book of Esther, as I said a moment ago, is that no matter what threat may seek to undo God's sovereign and saving purposes, God is committed to showing off His glory and His faithfulness to all of His promises in saving all of His people without leaving one of them out. Like Esther and Mordecai, now being presented for the remainder of the book, I mind you, as working together to co-conspire for the salvation of the Jews, I'm saying it reminds me of some other co-conspirators. The Father in eternity past planning. The Son in time accomplishing. And the Spirit in you applying. The redemption that Jesus paid for at the cross of Calvary. Not only do we see God providentially install a new leader, but number two, we find a new edict. E-D-I-C-T. Edict. A new decree. A new law. Verses 4-14 to is where this is found. It's the meat of the chapter. It's from this second point that we derive the title for today's sermon, Take Up Thy Arms and Fight. It's a summary of the conclusion of the edict that Mordecai penned and was distributed throughout the Persian Empire. So we have a new leader and now we get a new edict. Before we dive into the details of the edict, let's focus on how the Lord unfolded the details leading up to the new edict. And then we'll draw our attention to a couple of the details in it. Three things about this edict. How we got there. Number one, Esther's God-given burden. You see it in verses 3-6. through You don't get an edict unless you get a burden. In verses 3-6, through we find somebody with a burden bigger than her. Esther's God-given burden is for the salvation of others. I want you to try to feel the passage, not just read it. Two nights prior, she had been at a banquet with a man who had intended to kill her and all her people. On night number one, for reasons known only to the Lord, they're not written for us, Esther was unable or unwilling or maybe a mixture of both to identify Haman. And so, with courage unspeakable and a resolve that comes only from another world, from God Himself, Esther invites them to a second banquet. And it's then and there at that second banquet that she points her 
newly polished nail into the face of her adversary. I want you to feel the passage, not read it. In verses 1 and 2, we find out that this woman had just been put in charge of his estate. No more terror for her. She's now free. She's safe. She's saved. She's not going to die. Shouldn't that bring her instant relief? Why do we find her at the end of verse 3 falling down, quote, and weeping? Can't she be happy when something so great has finally gone her way? If you read verse 6, you'll find out about her burden. For how can I endure to see the calamity which will befall my people? And how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? I don't know if you see the parallel in those two phrases. For how can I endure to see thee? Exact wording. Twice over. It's put there by the author for intended emphasis. This verse and her weeping in verse 3 is owing to her heart burden for her people. Notice again, in verse 4, we get the extension of the golden scepter from the king. We may think it's an unnecessary detail, but the author's letting us know yet again that the king is as fickle today as he was in chapter 1 when he banished Queen Vashti from his harem for refusing to parade her beauty before his drinking buddies. He hasn't changed. He's a fickle me-monster. He's self-centered down to his bones. And Esther is once again doing chapter 4, if I perish, I perish. She's putting her life on the line not for herself. She's already been saved. It's for her people. She's resolutely approaching the king with the same spirit that she articulated in that summary verse of the whole book. If I perish, I perish. Like Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms, here I stand, so help me God. As the Lord turns the heart of the king to extend through His hand the grace of His golden scepter to Esther, I want you to look carefully at the four conditions that she prefaces her request with. Verse 5, if it pleases the king, if I found favor before the king, if the matter seems proper to the king, if I'm pleasing in his sight. You could boil those down into two. They're actually symmetrical and again on purpose. Condition number one, your pleasure. Condition number two, if you are pleased with me. She's putting herself forward as the mediator for her people. It's a bold and broken-hearted approach to the King. And because we have borrowed time today, I'm just going to cut straight to the chase. I'm not saying it's in the passage. I'm not allegorizing the passage. I'm just telling you why God put the book in the Bible. Because it reminds me of somebody greater. It reminds me of another mediator. The God-man, the Lord Jesus. Not Esther anymore. Queen Esther. Not just... Jesus of Nazareth, Lord Jesus, who in the book of Hebrews we're told goes before another king. And this time, not granting clemency, not exonerated, 
not set free, no golden scepter handed to this mediator, when the Lord Jesus barges His mighty self into the throne room of heaven, saying, if I perish, I perish. He just changes the if to a when. When I perish, save them. He goes to His Father boldly as our representative, as our high priest, and He says proverbially through the lips of Esther, if you're pleased with Me, O King, if you're pleased with Me, and if their hope is in Me, then save them. Deborah Reed again wrote about the Hebrew original language of verse 6. It is impossible for Esther to survive seeing the disaster come upon her people. My, my, my. Some of you are just listening to me like you're supposed to look at a preacher on a Sunday. But may the Holy Spirit send a dart from heaven right now because i got a question for you. Have you ever been so burdened for the salvation of somebody else? I'm basically asking if the life of Christ is in you. We could exhaust the rest of our Limited time looking at examples from Scripture like the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 who said, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Have you read Moses' prayer? In Exodus 32 and 33, his prayer again in the book of Numbers, which is alluded to in the book of Deuteronomy, where he's saying, God, if you're going to kill them, just kill me first. This is what Esther's doing. And this is what the Lord Jesus Christ ultimately did. What a beautiful foreshadowing of our Savior that we have these hundreds of years before He was born in our sister Queen Esther. Like her, our Savior was unwilling. Do you see it in verse 6? Unwilling to save Himself if it meant that His people would perish. Take a long look at the Redeemer the Savior of perishing sinners, look long at Christ through the eye of faith. Have you looked at Him recently? Have you looked at Him long? Listen to the crowds as Jesus, your Redeemer, is jeered at and mocked while He's hanging on a cross. Do you remember what they said to Him when He hung in agony on the tree? Can you see the crowds? Do you see the dust from their sandals kick up from the earth? And do you hear their voices? He saved others. He cannot save Himself. He is the King of Israel. Let Him now come down from the cross and we will believe in Him. That's the point. Like Queen Esther, the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't content with His own salvation. Queen Esther's burden in this text is so rife with the Gospel mercy of Jesus who endured the cross. Why? for the joy that was set before Him. Do you know what that joy was? That's a sincere question to you. Do you know what that joy was? I say it unabashedly. It was you. It was you. I'm not flipping the Gospel on its head and making it man-centered instead of God-centered. I'm saying He had eternal joy with the Father for endless ages before the world was made. 
Why would He come into this sin-torn world to go to a cross to get that same joy back? He did get that joy back. He just paid so that you could have it too. He came to the cross so that you could be saved. He came to the cross so that you could live for Him. Better yet, so that He could live through you. Let's stop praying so much that we would give our life to Jesus and let's just pray that God would give that God would give Jesus' life to us and that God would give our life to Him. At the end of the journey, you know the blessed words that we all aspire to hear and all God's people will hear these words. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your Master. That's what Esther wanted for her people. That's what Jesus came to pay for for you. Christ the King came to the cross to spread His own eternal joy into your heart and the heart of all the people. So number one, the way we get to the edict is Esther's God-given burden. But also under this new edict, there's the king's God-ordained decision. Big Bible kind of theology words, don't get tripped up on those, ordained. The king's God-ordained decision. This is also under point two, a new decree. The king's God-ordained decision came even though he was a pagan. You don't have to follow God to be used by God. Lamentations teaches that God's using the wicked to provide for the righteous. We see that all the way throughout Scripture from beginning to end. This pagan king is a pawn in the hands of God and the decision he makes in verses 7 and 8 is totally under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. Every empire... Every decision made by every emperor is subject to the sovereign prerogative of God to accomplish all of His promises and to preserve all of His people. What's happening today in the Middle East and in the communist sectors of China, what's happening in South Asia where our brothers and sisters in Christ are being slaughtered by the dozens on this day is not outside the sovereign control of the King of the universe. Verses 7 and 8, where King Ahasuerus tells Esther and Mordecai, write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring, reminds us, Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. God turns the king's heart wherever He wishes. When wicked rulers carry out their sinister plans, even including the politically sanctioned persecutions like I just alluded to that are happening today, God's people need a biblical view of a gigantic God. The God of Scripture who has every government regime on puppet strings doing His bidding ultimately to conspire to show off the radiant beauty of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Martyrdom doesn't mean that God has fallen off His throne. It simply means that the book of Revelation is being fulfilled. How long, O Lord, the martyrs cry. How long, O Lord, until our blood is avenged. But under our second point, not only God-given burden under this new edict, not only a God-ordained decision by the king, but third, under this second point, the limitless, God-glorifying result. This is the content of the edict. It's verses 9-14. to 
Esther's plea includes allusions to an ancient battle. You can see in verse 3, when she's in front of the king's face, she says, Haman the Agagite. She sees the outstanding threat to the Jews of her day connected to a long-standing threat of God's enemies against God's people from times past. For those who have not been around for the earlier parts of this series, or those like me who have a hard time remembering anything that we said in it, the Agagite means that Haman is a descendant of Agag, the king of the Amalekites, who Saul disobediently spared when God had commanded Saul to destroy all of them utterly from the king all the way down to the child. And now here we are, generations later, one of Agag's offspring, Haman, has sought to exterminate the people of Israel. But Esther sees the age-old connection. She doesn't have tunnel vision. She sees God's sovereign purposes. She hears His promises. She's constrained by her allegiance to the greater king. And Esther, seeing that age-old connection, Haman the Agagite, and the sinister plan of the enemy to attack God's saving promises influences with Mordecai's co-conspiring the content of this decree. Look at verse 11. The king granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate the entire army of any people or province that might attack them, including children and women, and to plunder their spoil. Well, this new decree as I started with at the beginning when I was trying to connect the dots of the book, this new decree is reminiscent of God's instructions not only through Haman to annihilate the Jews, but you've got to go all the way back to 1 Samuel 15. Mordecai's decree is reminiscent of God's instructions to Saul. 1 Samuel 15.3 God said, Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. Do not spare him, but put to death man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, donkey. Do you see the same language here? While Mordecai's decree raises a host of moral questions. Some of you are further down the line of thinking through the Bible and military, the Bible and war, holy crusades, holy war, conquests, those narratives of the Bible and the moral complexities that those kinds of questions raise, but the book of Esther doesn't set out to answer those questions. In fact, upon closer reading, the question isn't, can we justify holy war based on the book of Esther? The question that Esther is mainly seeking to answer is not the morality of war. Do you kill children and women as the people of God? Verse 11. It's not seeking to answer that. Upon closer reading, it becomes apparent that the, most, that, that the language of Mordecai's decree is simply lifting the language of Haman's decree. Verse 11 is a repeat of chapter 3, verse 13, what Haman wrote down. Mordecai's not saying this is the way I would have written. Mordecai's saying this is the way we're going to totally reverse the curse. In keeping with the purpose of the entire book, the author is showing us through... Difficult phrases like verse 11, kill women and children. The author's showing us that it's an entire reversal of the wicked plot of God's enemy against God's people. The promises that God's making to the Jews are being meticulously point for point overturned by God. 
As we continue the reading, we discover in chapter 9 though, they didn't kill the women and children. Chapter 9, verse 6, they only killed the men. Beyond that, chapter 9, verse 10, they didn't lay a hand on the plunder which the edict made provision for. So we see that the author is writing with a purpose. His purpose is not to answer our modern question that we may contrive and impose on the Bible. His purpose is to deal not with the moral intricacies of war. Rather, he's showing us that God is totally about reversing the curse against His people. There's a deeper layer, isn't there? Chapter 3, verse 12 tells us that Haman's edict was written on a certain day. I don't know if you've paid attention to these months, these years. Adar... Nisan, Sivan, we don't even know when those things existed, so it's easy just to gloss right over them, but don't pass too quickly. Haman's initial edict, chapter 3, verse 12, was written on the 13th day of Nisan. Hmm. Anybody know what happened on the 14th day of Nisan? The Passover. Haman's wicked edict. When he's over there casting lots and trying to make a mockery of God and anybody who would follow Him is purposefully being played out on the eve of the Passover. So as the Jews throughout Persia on the day that Mordecai is writing a new edict, the Jews scattered throughout Persia Persia are worried about their own existence. Are they going to be exterminated? Are they about to be the victims of politically sanctioned genocide? Maybe they remember eating their Passover meal the day before the letter made it to town being carried about by the king's horsemen. They had just had their bellies filled the day prior remembering the mercies of God to Israel in the Exodus. Little did they know when they were preparing their meal, Haman was preparing his edict. And now here they are under the ominous instructions of Haman's edict scattered all throughout Persia. I want you to picture them. 127 provinces. Jews in every last one of them. Living in the cities. Living in the countryside. All they know is that 11 months down the road, they're going to die. Now I want you to remember something. That while they're out there worried, and they're out there fretting, and they're out there filled with anxiety, and there are people in places that are modern day Abbottabad, Pakistan. There are Jews living in what is now modern day Hyderabad, India. There are Jews of that day under Haman's edict worried that they're going to be the victim of genocide because the edict is plastered on the city squares door in places like Somalia and Turkey and all the modern day territories in between, I want you to remember now that unbeknownst to them, in a place far away, God is raising up for them a Savior who's going to do a work that they had nothing to do with They had no part in planning and they're simply about to be the recipient and beneficiary of what God's doing through somebody else with no help from them. 
just as Haman had plotted to destroy God's people on Passover Eve, I'm reminded of another Passover Eve when my Savior was stalked down in the Garden of Gethsemane by 600 plus Roman soldiers, accompanied in addition to them and all their Roman military garb, they were accompanied also by a host of religious leaders with torches and lanterns and weapons, John 18 tells us, and all 700, all 800, all 900, maybe eclipsing four digits, all thousand of them came to seek my Savior. And they were issued to go by the political and religious elite. And little did they know, just like Haman on Passover Eve, Little did they know that their evil intentions and their God-hating plans fit squarely into the larger narrative of God's eternal purposes to rescue His people through a Redeemer. Through the cross, the resurrection of the, of the very One that they had sought to kill. And here comes Mordecai. And when his edict goes out into all the land, not only do we have a new leader, not only do we have a new edict, but third and finally, we get new joy. Verses 15 to 17. When the plan of the Redeemer is carried out by the horsemen riding the stallion sired by the royal stud, in verse 15, could you imagine being a Jew in the land of Persia on the day this letter made it to your city? The first edict had struck sheer terror in your heart. And the second edict instantly injects you with unfettered joy. Do you see it in verse 15? The city of Susa at the end of the verse shouted and rejoiced. Verse 16, four words. The Jews, there was for them light and gladness, and joy, and honor. You go to the middle of verse 17, there is now gladness and joy for the Jews. See, when the text spoke in verse 3 about Haman the Agagite, what he failed to calculate was verse 7, there was a man named Mordecai the Jew. There would have been no mistake about the author's not-so-subtle point for the original audience of the book of Esther. And finally, once again, Deborah Reed highlights it for us. From the moment of Haman's introduction in the book of Esther, the Jewish reader would be in no doubt that Mordecai represents the redemptive presence of God among his people, whereas Haman stands in opposition to God in his presence. When the Jews of Esther's day had heard of and seen and saw an edict written from the son of Saul who had been wearing the signet ring which reminded them of another king, Agag, whose son Haman was. And they read the edict in their own language that on this day came to their city written not by Haman but by Mordecai. In His own words, the text tells us, they are fully aware at that moment that God is with them. Do you feel it? If you don't feel it, you hadn't read it closely enough. 
Mordecai represents for them, as I mentioned from Deborah Reed, the redemptive presence of God among His people. When this piece of paper comes to your town, I promise you, it's time for you to go to the tattoo artist and see if you can get it inscribed on your back. It makes perfect sense that verse 16 is the response of all the Jews in all the places. While they on one day were filled with sheer terror, while they expected themselves to be exterminated in about 11 months' time, if you do the math between the day that Haman sent out his edict and the day that Mordecai sent out his edict, you'll get two months and ten days. Seventy days of absolute terror. But in verse 16, light, gladness, joy, honor. New joy. Verse 17, gladness and joy for the Jews. A feast and a holiday. Reminds me of Tim Keller's kind of new version of Tolkien's line in Lord of the Rings when Keller says, everything that is sad is going to come untrue. And it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. Why would God take the people of Israel, the Jews, through the tumultuous episodes of the book of Esther, if He just intended to save them from the beginning according to His eternal plan? Why would He bring them to the brink of seeming disaster? Why would they be vexed of heart and shaken to their core concerning their faith? Why would they have to get in sackcloth and ashes and weep and wail and go to the city square and mourn if God just meant verses 15 to 17 to happen? Exuberant joy. Because you see, what Keller said is right. It will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. See, God's goal is not to give you smooth sailing, God's goal is to make you like Jesus. God wants the character of Christ formed in you. Or as Paul wrote to the Galatians when he said, I am again in labor with you until Christ is birthed in you. Or what he said to the Ephesians, that is the Apostle Paul, until every last one of you in the little church of Ephesus are made as mature and complete as Christ is. Ephesians 4.13 Or what Paul wrote to the Colossians in chapter 1, he said, we just preach Jesus. We don't have another message. If you're bored with Him, we're sorry, but we have nothing else to offer. We proclaim Christ because we want every man complete in Christ. He wants the Gospel pattern not only to work out in the life of Jesus, but to take place in a sanctifying way by the Holy Spirit in your heart. Where you get the birth of a vision, the death of a vision, and the resurrection of something far better. He took all the Jews in Esther's day through the birth of jubilant psalm living as free men in the land of Persia after the Babylonian captivity. Here they were, scattered through all the provinces of the king, making light, being merry, until they get Haman's decree, and there's the instant death of a vision. And then God brings them through a Gospel pattern where they get the resurrection of something better. See, God was conforming them to the image of His Son long before that Son would ever break into the sin-torn world. But I want you to see again, it was somehow greater for having once been broken. The exuberant joy in verses 15 to 17 was proportionate 
to the previous threat of death. Their gladness, and the reason some of you don't feel it is because you hadn't gotten into the tomb yet with Jesus. Their gladness was in proportion to their despair. Their lightness of heart, verses 16, 17, was in proportion to the vexing of their soul. Everything was proportionate. The despair of life and the hope of glory. You see, until you've reckoned with your own sin, until you've seen the consequences of your real enemy, and his name is Nahaman, until you've seen the just desert of your rebellion against God, you're not going to feel like you're living under the decree of death. But when once, and by the Holy Spirit's doing, the veil is ripped back and you see the depravity of your own heart. You see the decree of death that you deserve in front of the face of God. And all you can hear is condemnation, condemnation, condemnation. And then you go living through all the provinces under sheer terror of the date of your demise. How would it feel to you if instead of one of the king's servants riding on one of the royal stallions, Jesus Himself came riding on a donkey entering into the city of Jerusalem. And instead of handing you a piece of paper saying you can go free, He carves your sins into His own body and becomes a curse for you. And He hangs on a tree not so that nobody's condemned, but that Romans 8.1, there is now therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because He took your condemnation in your place. You see, there's another day coming, isn't there? When horses are going to be ridden and wars are going to be waged. But when Christ comes on that glorious day which is already set in the annals of eternity past in the heart of God the Father, when Christ comes on that glorious day, He's going to come with all His mighty angels to make war. And it's going to be, as we're going to find out, Lord willing, next week in Esther chapter 9, our last cliffhanger of the series, we're going to find that when Christ comes again riding a white horse and delivering the final decree, all God's enemies are going to be judged forever. And all God's people are going to be saved forever. And Esther is just for us, though true, events in human history, but a faint foreshadowing of what will happen when the King of glory comes again to rescue His people according to the Father's eternal decree. And when He comes again, the papers He carry, he carries will be signed and sealed with His own blood. The point of the book of Esther for God's enemies is this. Your foe is too big for you. If you're found like Haman to be fighting against God, you cannot prevail and you must perish. But the point of the book of Esther for God's people is this, though times and seasons, though decades and generations, 400 years in Egypt, 400 years between the close of the Old Testament and the birth of Christ, though times and seasons may appear dark and deadly, God's character and God's nature ensures that God's Gospel promises will prevail and in the end, He's already raised up the Mediator and His people who hope in Him 
will ultimately be forever preserved. Well, may God apply these few things to our hearts. Join me as we pray.